I declare bankruptcy! My guest today is Jim Capretta. He's a resident fellow here at AEI, where he studies healthcare, entitlements, and budgetary policy. And he joins me today to discuss a recent cover story he co-wrote for the Weekly Standard titled, The Entitlement Crisis is Looming. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jim. Glad to be with you. Uh, let me start uh, with a, a line from, uh, from the essay. It goes like this. The United States is likely to have more room for borrowing without facing the most dire consequences. But no one can know for sure just when its luck will run out. Once that invisible line is crossed, interest rates can spike, raise borrowing, uh, raising borrowing costs even more, which can quickly spark a serious crisis. Now, that, that question, whenever I go out and I talk to, talk to folks, uh, that is always a question they ask. That they, 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 they hear these you know, huge numbers that we're borrowing and the huge size of our debt, and they say, well, when is, when is the tipping point? Are, are, are we close? Do we have a, a lot more ways to go? How do you answer that question? Well, there's really no easy way to answer that empirically because, you know, we're off the charts in terms of the size of our economy. So you can't – we're not really comparable to any other of these other countries that have run into trouble. Um, so it is, it is – it's a guessing game a little bit. But having said that, you can maybe point at it this way, which is once the – Debt service costs on the on the exist servicing the existing debt gets so large that the combination of that cost plus the size of government cost pushes it beyond what investors would say, hey, you can't get that much money out of taxpayers. Mm-hmm. In other words, once it crosses that line where just the average bond investor out there says, wow, the amount of debt service plus the entitlements plus just the regular routine government costs is starting to reach a point where I don't think the politicians can get that money out of the pockets of taxpayers. That's when you start to have trouble in a country. Because think of uh, you know little countries like Greece or otherwise, they really ran into trouble when it became clear that the political process couldn't extract enough money right. out of the taxpayers to finance the government. Right. So the, so the issue is really will there come a point where even though on paper you could say – Oh, they're taxed at this level, and they theoretically they could just tax people more. Yeah. But you're like, but political. So it's a it's a political constraint because ultimately they couldn't. People would not go along with that level of taxation. That's part of it. Yes, absolutely. Obviously, there's a lot. There's room for taxing people more in the United States. There certainly is today, but it is an infinite. You know, uh, and beyond a certain point, people take their capital and move elsewhere. You know, there's lots of things well, that can but, happen. But I think the argument would be like. Where are they going to go? Gonna go? You have a, so you have a country like the United States, uh, which uh, compared to other advanced economies, is not, it's not a highly taxed economy. Our debt is in our own currency. We own the printing presses for the dollar, the global currency. The debt ratio has doubled over the past decade with no seeming you know, terrible impact. Boy, if I, you know, it seems... It's, it seems to me it's, it's not a crazy case to make that it could double again to a, you know from seventy five percent of GDP, uh, roughly what it's at now, to one hundred and fifty percent. Do you think that that is well within kind of our ability to, to bear that kind of debt burden level, or do you think that's that that's too much? No, I don't. I don't think we have that much room. So, they, I think also there's a fallacy sort of buried into the, all of that, which is that the idea that this run up in debt that we've already had has had no consequence. 
interest right? rates are low. We don't. Yeah, interest oh, rates are low. We haven't and this, seen anything. Anything. Nothing's been spiking. You don't we know. Haven't what the, seen spiking anything. You don't know what the counterfactual is. Where first of all, the federal government has been running large and pretty chronic deficits for a long time. We could have done much better than we're doing today, if in the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s we had been more fiscally prudent and invested more through public investments and left more in the private sector to invest in capital expansion. So I think the idea that... So you're saying so instead of spending money on, uh, on interest, we could have spent it on something else? Are you saying, <laughs> are you saying, sorry, is that what you're saying? Or are, are, Absolutely, are you, that's one thing I'm saying. Are, and are, are, we could have spent, yeah. if we had spent less on entitlements, right. which I think we're going to get to... We would be able to spend. More are, are, are you saying that that there also that borrowing costs would have been lower for the private sector than yes, they could have, even lower than they are? Right? right. People think, well, they're low now. Well, they really low. They seem really low, but uh, honestly, for a lot of years they were higher. Right. And those years we could have done better. I mean, things get paid off from a capital investment over ten and fifteen and twenty years. It's not always a two-year investment. All right. And especially with public investment. And so you have to kind of have a long view on these things. And we could be doing better today if we'd done better 15, 20, and 30 years ago. But if, I would have, but if we would have had this conversation in 2008 and I, and I, and I would have said, here's what's going to happen over the next 10 years, that debt GP ratio is going to double to a, to a level which we typically don't see yeah. in peacetime. Would you, would, you, would, you, would you have bet that the circumstances would be as positive as they are today, with that kind of doubling of the debt, I mean, or would how you say, positive? No way. That that we. I don't know where that line is, but we definitely would have crossed it by the time we. <laughs> I mean, people have very short memories, <laughs> right? Which is that, first of all, I would have been for like everybody. Most people were in two thousand eight, borrowing a lot of money to counteract the deep recession. Mm-hmm. You know, I was not one to say we should be. You know, in a position of budget restraint, cut or, to grow. When we're, you have to cut the grow. Yeah. I think was one. Theory. Yeah, I that don't put that was not me. I'm not for that. I don't think that makes any sense. So we were going to borrow money. We did borrow money. Right. That was good. The problem is that we should have then planned to have a restraint when the economy was strong, and of course we didn't really have that. Moreover, you know it hasn't been that great for the last five years. It's been okay. But I mean, you're saying, oh, things are so great and everything. It's been but, good. But, but interest rates have been low. The dollar hasn't collapsed. We haven't seen inflation spike. So kind of those macro things don't seem to be. I understand that we've had low GDP growth. Um, you know, you know, we've been, you know, we've been adding jobs. You know, productivity hasn't been great. But there are, but <laughs> that's not been a crisis. It's not been sort of the macroeconomic crisis. That, no, it hasn't been a crisis of debt, and it hasn't right. been a crisis of you know a recession. But we've had. A stagnant economy, and people don't feel like they came out of the recovery, or came out of the recession with a recovery that made up for the fact that they were in a lot of pain for those two years of deep recession. So, I think it fed into a lot of our political problems and everything else. So we could be doing a lot better if we had managed our affairs better, not just from the crisis onward, but over the last thirty years. And, and one reason I'm sort of you know you know, you know harping on the uh, that <laughs> issue before we get to entitlements is because if you don't think that were anywhere close to what our sort of capacity to handle this debt is. And some people say, you know, you look at Japan, a country with a debt rate, GDP ratio in the, in the 200s, I think, that if we're nowhere close to that level, then why are we going to worry so much about funding Social Security and Medicare and other programs that if you take, if you take, if you take out that constraint, well, I mean, these... These problems don't quite really look like problems, do they? 
Yeah, I mean, but I mean, I, I got to push back a little bit on the premise here. I think the idea that you'd ask any sort of mainstream economist that, gee, you know, would you rather have a country with 250% of GDP in debt and, you know, 4% growth right now, but the prospect of who knows what in 10 and 15 years based on all that debt? Or would you rather have a country where they're at 50% of GDP in debt, growing at 3.5%, investing and planning for the future, clearly can pay for their, you know, social obligations, et cetera, et cetera. Which would you rather have? It's kind of insane. The idea that that Japan is in a great position because they borrowed so much and they're trying to reinflate. Japan is, you know, let's face it. I mean, they are having a demographic crisis. They're going to lose 30% of their working age population over the next few decades. They're going to shrink. And they've got all this debt piled up already. How are they going to finance their totally transformed society in 30 and 40 years. I don't think they know. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I would be, I just completely disagree with the notion that, oh, don't worry, you know, it'll all work out. I mean, it's never worked right. out before. Why would we think it would this time? Well, now, now, I don't know how much time you spend on, on, on Twitter. Zero. Uh, <laughs> Zero. Now, but if, 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 you, if you were to uh, begin to do this, <laughs> Uh, I and, don't think I will. And, uh, and there, there is a, there's a growing uh, movement, maybe not with your, you know, sort of mainstream central left economists, your, uh, your Larry Summers, your Jason Fern, but there are other uh, economists at other, um, at, at some left wing think tanks who do make the argument that we've gotten the whole thing all wrong. That the fact that the U.S. and Japan have been able to you know, add a lot of debt with no, you know, none, none of these kind of scary uh, impacts that, we, that we've uh, that we've mentioned that you, that you're concerned about. Think that, that maybe we just have the model all wrong. I mean, I'm not, there's a it's it's a theory. It's called modern monetary theory. If you're if you're not aware of it, we're not gonna we're not gonna dig down deep uh, into it right now. But do you do you, do you have any concern that maybe you think either first one that you think you've gotten the story wrong in some way, and do you get any pushback? When you talk to folks on Capitol Hill who start saying kind of what I've been saying that, ah, oh, you know, you guys have been talking about the debt problem for years. We keep, the be we keep adding debt and there doesn't seem to be a problem. Uh, I, don't get, I don't get much pushback. Maybe I don't run in the right circles. But uh, I, I would say that even, even amongst people who disagree with me and Yuval about the entitlement problem. Yuvalovin, who's the your Yuvalovin, I'm not sure we mentioned. His yeah, name, I should, we should have. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, Yuvalovin, my great colleague from the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Uh, you know, people who disagree with us about the premise of our piece on entitlements, very few of them would say. And you know, by the way, you know, I think we should just run up debt and we'll have no problem. And people misinterpret what Paul Krugman has written about this. Mm -hmm. He doesn't say, you know. He says, yeah, you know, these deficits gold basically got the story wrong. We need to be attentive to the Keynesian notion of, of uh, you know, reinflating an economy when it's down. You know, I don't necessarily disagree with it. It's all a matter of, you know, when and where and where you draw the lines. He would not argue that, yeah, great, let's, you know, run up, you know, 200% of GDP in debt and nobody will have no... He doesn't... He's not for that. So I think that, that you're talking about a very marginalized group of economists who think there's absolutely no consequence to governmental debt. There's plenty of evidence around the world, granted much smaller countries, but even but medium not America. countries. I think they would say, they would jump in and say that. They're not America. America they're not is its own thing. <laughs> and you cannot compare it to smaller or any other country because they, they, they print their own currency. Remember, we used to be, you know, basically 
40 or 50 percent of the government's production or the world's production, you know, right after World War II because of the devastation of the war and because of our size, we were preeminent in every single way. We're down to about 25. We're a growing, great, dynamic economy. But there's a big world out there. And that world is going to keep getting bigger relative to the United States. So, you know, in 10, 15, 20 years time, we're going to be, you know, 15 percent to 20 percent of world GDP. Okay, and so our relative share will keep shrinking as the rest of the world catches up in terms of wealth, which is great. But, you know, the idea that we can be so dominant and have no, you know, no worry whatsoever about issuing more and more debt to a world that may or may not want it. I just totally disagree with that. I mean, and then I'm going to move on. But they would I think they'd say, you know. What's the alternative? What are people going to buy? They're not, they're going to dump U.S. bonds, and what are they what are they going to buy? Uh, it's going to be a pretty big Chinese world bonds, uh, artwork, all <laughs> cryptocurrencies. I mean, what's that? There is that there is no that there is no alternative unless you really begin to create some exaggerated economic scenario for the United States, where where it's you know you know three hundred percent of GDP, and we're already and and we're already you know we're taxing at ninety percent. That you'd have to get to a pretty a pretty significant um, an extreme situation before people would abandon treasuries. Well, as we said in the article, do we think we're on the cusp of a big problem where this is going to happen? No, we don't. Uh, do we think our economy will be stronger in ten years? Even if set aside this question about you know where the line of the extreme scenario is. Right. Would we a better, be a stronger, better-off country if we attended to our debt problems sensibly and gradually and, you know, with your incremental reforms, as opposed to just not worrying about it and running it up willy-nilly? Yeah, we would be. Okay, we'll grow stronger. We'll invest more. We'll do better. So why, why even argue about this? You know, I think it's sort of a, you know, a false argument, frankly. Do you, do you think, like, the, we've sort of missed an opportunity uh, to deal with some of these problems anytime soon, uh, because it, it seemed for a while at least there was a general acknowledgement on both sides of the aisle that we needed to do something uh, about entitlements, particularly Social Security, particularly Medicare, and there was a lot of talk about you know we were, there, eventually there would be some grand bargain and Democrats would accept changes in the system that wouldn't necessarily be cuts, but it would be it would slow down the future pace of growth and Republicans would. Uh, except some sort of tax increases. I mean, you could, it's not hard to figure out something. It doesn't seem like we're anywhere near that kind of bargain. Um, one, Republicans don't seem to be very interested in, I mean, they're, they're continuing to cut taxes. And all the Democrats who are running for, who are thinking about running for president, they're talking about expanding entitlements, you know, uh, Medicare for all, uh, more, social, more social security. So has... Are we anywhere near that moment or has, at least for the foreseeable future, we've missed that sort of moment where, and I assume that you would think this has to be done on a bipartisan basis. Yeah, I, I'll start with that. I do think it has to be done on a bipartisan basis. And I also agree we have missed our moment. It would have been better. Probably could have done something in the in the you know immediate aftermath of President Obama win, you know, winning in 2008 and the Republicans taking the House in 2010. There was a small window and the president did speak with House Speaker Boehner frequently about a deal didn't happen. Um, there was also potential for a deal in the late Clinton years that really would have made a big difference. So yeah, we missed some good opportunities. Um, I don't think we're anywhere close. I think we're getting farther away from a deal at the moment. And you know, I think there are some systematic institutional barriers here that are probably need to be thought through. I mean, it, it's not so easy. Even if politicians got together tomorrow and said, you know what, we got to 
deal with this problem. Right. In some ways, they don't even know what to pick up to try to fix it. They don't even know where... These are complicated things. You know, reforming Social Security isn't something you just turn to and say, oh, get that thing off the shelf. I mean, there are some ready ideas, but it's pretty complicated. And you got to have a, a sort of a series of institutional preparation that go into this. And same with Medicare reform. So you're going to have to bring a lot to bear around an agreement of this kind. And these are things that will take... Do you, mean, do you mean sort of political institutions? Or are you just talking about, you know, interest groups? Or just think, the whole, you know, sort of political process writ large, there needs to be a lot of ground. There needs prepared. to be... A, the, the political process generally, you know, a lot of ground needs to be prepared. But also I think that might there might be some use in having some bipartisan institutional structure that tries to grapple with, you know, if we were going to do something in this area, what would it look like? And how could we do it? And how do the pieces like fit a, together like a, in a, some sort of commission? Another commission, yeah. Another oh another body. Well, uh, the I mean, it doesn't mean it's going to pass or it's going right. anything's going to happen. But you need some refreshing of ideas to assemble something that could, you know, in the right moment, be at least the beginning point for a conversation. Right now, they're nowhere, you know, and so I don't. I, I think there's time to work on it. That's for sure. Right. I mean, I you know, I'm uh, you know I've sort of been looking at these issues long enough to remember that. People were wondering, you know, which which sort of Social Security privatization plan do we you know? Did, did people like? You know, you had, you know, you know, Cl- you know, President Clinton wanted to, you know, invest the, you know, invest the funds into the stock market. Where you know, Republicans they wanted they wanted you to, you know, do it yourself. So there was sort of different flavors of Social <laughs> Security privatization. There was supposedly going to be a big deal between Clinton and Gingrich. Uh, so it was a big issue uh, in the in the 90s. Nowhere again, sort of, <laughs> boy, nowhere close to that right now. And, and why do you why do you think that moment slipped? away, even though now the debt problems are way worse. Yeah. You know, I think that one was a real shame. I think it really just became... the Clinton-Gingrich. Yeah. I think the they missed that one because, A, the public wasn't quite ready for it. They were trying to get the public ready, but it, it really, you know, it's one of these things where it takes a long time. Things were so good economically at that moment, it was hard to get the public to say, now's the time for a big change, you know. Public. So you can't do it when things are going good. Is, that's one and of then them. you can't do things after you have a, a big you know, stock market collapse yeah. like we had in 2008. Yeah. So that, it's, know, there's never a right there's time. There's a very narrow window. There's a very, very narrow window. Right. So I think they missed their moment there for that reason. Um, and, you know, the politics didn't perfectly line up, too. Right. So uh, but you're still trying. <laughs> you're still you're still thinking about it, trying to come. And that's what, you know, the, the, the story is about, trying to think about what, what that kind of reform looks like. And as you said, you know, the, the sooner you can do something about it, then the less sort of severe yes. uh, you know, the changes need to be, all the other, all the sort of institutional building and, get, get, you know, laying the political groundwork, all that's a lot easier if the, if the changes aren't quite uh, so significant. So, so what are you guys talking about right now? Let's, let's take uh, Medicare first. Um, you know, Paul Ryan, he sort of really, you know, made his mark on entitlement reform, talking a lot about Medicare. What is sort of the current thinking, sort of center-right thinking about what Medicare reform should look like? Well, we outline in the in the article in the Weekly Standard that Medicare reform really should kind of have sort of two components to it. One would be to move it toward, as Speaker Ryan has proposed and advocated for so many years, something like premium support. And what does that mean? That means basically you try to have the beneficiary population participate in the process of driving the system toward higher efficiency and better and lower costs. So if the beneficiary has a little bit more choice and control of the money 
in a structured way. This would not be to, as you know, critics will charge, oh, throwing them out to just you know fend for themselves. It would never remotely look like that. Right. But if there's a structured choice between sort of a managed care option, the traditional program, and maybe something in between, and the beneficiary saves more money by choosing less expensive options, that's a way of driving the and system. They're choosing these options. Not you know they're not choosing these options uh, when they're on the way to the emergency room. No, these, these are these, these are people you know looking at you know you know talking to someone in the in the comfort of their own home, looking on their computer screen, talking to their financial, thinking about it calmly and rationally. Of course, which which is uh, right. Yeah, of course, and of course they already do this for their drug benefit, right? Sure. So drug benefit isn't the whole thing, but drug benefit is ten percent of Medicare now, maybe a little more, and they already do this, so that they ha- they have to get their drug benefit through a private competitive plan and they have to pick it every year. So this idea of premium support is basically to expand on that idea and make it apply to the rest of the program too. By the way, one third of the beneficiaries already pick a privately managed Medicare plan for their whole Medicare benefit, hospital and doctor and everything else. So this isn't really an outlandish idea. It's really just to make what already exists in Medicare a more rational structured choice so it becomes more competitive and drives costs down. That's one component. The second component is to rethink a little bit how much each of the beneficiaries gets subsidized by other taxpayers. Workers think that they pay for their Medicare because they pay a payroll tax like they do for Social Security, but that payroll tax only pays for about 40% of Medicare. The other 60% is you know, uh, Part B, which is really for physician and outpatient services, and there the taxpayers subsidize 75% of it. Okay, so when you look at the whole picture, the whole package, a little less than half of Medicare is subsidized by the taxpayers through direct uh, general fund payments. Uh, That goes to well-to-do people and not so well-to-do people. So what you're going to have to do is rethink a little bit what is the subsidy structure of Medicare. How much should we be subsidizing somebody who's been maybe an upper-middle-class person their entire life, they retire, they go on Medicare... Should they get a subsidy for their Medicare when they retire at 65? They were able to pay for their health insurance through their workplace all through their working lives. And now at 65, all taxpayers pay. So maybe we need to rethink a little bit how much is being paid. We have that to some degree. They do have income testing of premiums in Medicare, but it's only affecting about 5 growing to about 8% of the beneficiaries. And I I think an honest look at at America would say, you know what? Not 5 to 8% of us, a little bit more than that, probably made enough money in our working lives to pay for our, more of our Medicare when we retire. And, and so what you'll be talking about in the future is not cutting the absolute amount spent. You were talking about slowing, slowing the rate of growth. Slowing the rate of growth. I mean, that's a key difference that I think often gets sort of. Now, why do, uh, and, uh, why do health experts on the left hate this idea? Well, there's a big disagreement, and maybe there's... This is you know, not what they're talking about. No, no. There's a big disagreement, which, and, and some contradictions on the left about healthcare, right? Which is that the, the, the big disagreement in healthcare is, do, can market forces bring more discipline to the system or not? That's the fundamental disagreement and question in healthcare. And ironically, President Obama built the Affordable Care Act on the presumption that market forces and competition could bring more discipline to the system, okay? But he wanted to do it in a targeted way for just a slice of the population. 
most people on the Democratic side would favor more government regulation to control costs, not markets. But they were willing to try competitive approach if it didn't apply in Medicare. Right. Right. But they are uncomfortable with extending a competitive philosophy more deeply into the Medicare program because they like regulation, frankly. And they prefer it and they think that the uh, cost can be more uh, brought under control, brought under control in a, in a better way if they just extend Medicare's payment regulations outside of Medicare into the rest of the system rather than bringing competitive forces into Medicare. So that's the tug of war. But the key changes um, folks on the left would make to Medicare, they would, they would expand it. They would expand it, you know, as so they would begin taking in younger, younger yeah. folks. And I think maybe the idea is eventually taking take in everybody. But, but is there any substantial change that they would make on the cost side? They would lower, they would use Medicare's power to, remember, med, what Medicare does in its traditional lower the program. Pay, they lower payments. They, they, the Medicare can essentially dictate prices right. because it's such a dominant system right. and everybody's got to follow their rules Medicare says we're going to pay, you know, 20 bucks for something. It's a take it or leave it proposition. You don't get to go in and say I'd like 25, right? They don't really negotiate. What what many people uh, who favor that kind of approach would like to do is extend that philosophy into drugs and to other parts of Medicare. And so they would like to take Medicare's regulatory power even further than it already is and use it to cut costs. Right. Under under such on that kind of program would we be what would happen to the rate of growth? Would we be spending less than projected? There have been the there, there's, a, there's a study out recently that looked at a sort of Medicare for all plan, and it said it would cost uh, 33 trillion dollars, but that would actually be two trillion less than ho- t- total healthcare expenditures right now. Yeah. Um, so, what would be the impact on spending on a kind of a Medicare for all? You know, I don't have any doubt. Having I worked in the government myself for a long time and was part of lots of regulations to cut spending in Medicare. (laughs) Okay, so I don't have any doubt that if we wanted to, we could use Medicare's regulatory power to cut prices and payments in a lot of settings in America. If you took Medicare and just said, hey, you get to run the whole thing. You set prices for everybody and for every service that's out there. I, I have no doubt that those prices would be below what would occur if we allowed a market-driven system to occur. Frankly, if you look at other countries, you can observe that that's the case. Sure. Um, The question is, are the prices the right prices? Does it underpay for things or an overpay for things? You know, how do they know what the right price is? Remember, price in a market is absolutely essential. It's It's the way of knowing what the value of something is. The algorithm will tell us. <laughs> I, think, I think we have moved beyond prices. We have moved to an algorithm. And that, and that will, AI will solve yeah, this. Uh, I'm, only, I'm, only, I'm only somewhat kidding because I do think there is that belief that, yeah. you know, that, we, that we have finally found the, the substitute for the prices. Central planning will, find, will be work through AI, maybe. Um, good luck with that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, so they, they, you know, they would like to see more regulatory approach. But the consequence, I mean, the, the, the truth is that Whenever you set the price in a market uh, arbitrarily and it's below what the market price would have been, you are constraining supply or altering the supply of something and lowering its quality. That's just sort of a fact and you know truth of markets. It's just you can't get around it. So that's the uncomfortable thing for price setting in healthcare, as it is in any other setting. And then some people say, well, you know, it's the best you can do. You do you set it to where you think it's right. 
And yeah, if that means there's a little bit of supply problems and people have to wait a little longer, no big deal. You know, it's better than, you know, runaway costs. Right. So they, they're willing to take that trade off. But you have to recognize there is, by definition, a cost. And, and, when, and when you talk to um, healthcare experts, uh, you know, sort of on, on the left, is there making the argument you just made about Obamacare at this point, do they think like, listen, that was that was only supposed to be a way station, you know, toward where. So you're you're that that's yesterday's news. We've sort of moved beyond that. Yeah. And we want to and we want to sort of continue the progress into a more universal system. For, so saying that, you know, you want you that you want to take sort of these more market oriented ideas from Obamacare. And they're, that's not where they are. <laughs> right. So you're yeah. not you're not persuading them with that argument. Uh, yeah. They kind of would look at me or other people who make that argument and say, uh, well, you weren't listening carefully enough. You know, we were, we we did that because I mean, the truth is, and I don't mean to, you know, try to put motives on these things, but I mean, President Obama and, and the people who sold the Affordable Care Act based on it being a competitive approach were that was you know their heart was partly in it because they knew that there might be a little bit of truth to it, but they really and even President Obama said their heart was really into you know trying to get coverage. And if the competition thing didn't work out, they perfectly were willing to, you know, use regulations to right. try to get costs under control, which is probably where they always were more comfortable. Right. So I don't think any of us would really totally believe that they were permanent converts to competition. And, and Social Security uh, would seem to be a simpler problem uh, to deal with, far, more, uh, far fewer moving parts, right? And so what would you do there? The old, the old, the old idea, and I still, boy, I still, I still hear candidates bring it up sort of. Uh, like on the stump, you know, some sort of, you know, moving, moving to personal accounts. You invest some portion of your Social Security dollars uh, in the in the stock market. Um, is that still like is that still the sort of go to baseline <laughs> right of center Social Security form or, or have we moved on from that in some fashion? Well, I mean, uh, I, this is it's in certain ways the math is simpler, and one can look in a book and find the four ideas that would close the gap in Social Security a little bit more quickly than you can in Medicare. It is simpler in that sense, but Social Security also isn't that easy from my perspective because there are some problems with the current structure. Social Security was put together in 1935, and it's, today it really has just evolved from that original idea. It hasn't moved totally away from it, and it, what it did was it mashed together a couple of different things. It mashed together a social welfare program with an earned retirement benefit. Right. So the two get mixed up together to the point where it's so opaque, the average worker really has no idea what they're going to get out of it. Right. I mean, it's astonishing after a lifetime of paying in that most people really have no idea about the calculation, what the basis of it is, and how they will, you know, how close even to what, the, what, what they're going to earn as a monthly benefit. That's a problem in and of itself, right? I mean, sure. it should be more transparent than that. Uh, and so what they probably need to do, and what we talk about in the paper is, is something Andrew here, Andrew Biggs at AI, really has been a champion of, wrote a great paper about this. They ought to start thinking about separating me, uh, Social Security's two functions into two components. So there's sort of a protect people from poverty component, right. a social welfare component, that could be a flat fixed benefit. And then above that, you get something that is really related to what you pay in. So the more you work, the bigger, higher the benefit you are. By the way, that's hugely important for labor supply, both while people are working and when they get to 65 to keep working. So, you know, uh, yes, 
Social Would lower simpler. income people be better off with that flat benefit than, than they are today? Many. About one-third of Social Security's beneficiaries would get a higher benefit if you did that. Right. If you set that initially, just at the bottom One-third of the total beneficiaries. Yes. And, the, and that one-third is lower income folks. All low income, yes. Okay. And right. so it would when be- when I've talked about this plan, people are like, well, are you, I mean, who, who, who is gonna, who's benefiting from this plan? And I'm thinking, well, I think- it's supposed to help lower income people. It is. Giving them more money and also and, and an amount of money they can it does. understand what they're getting. Absolutely. It would. So this isn't a stick it to this isn't a stick it to poor people plan. No, and this okay. is this is very similar to versions of, of plans in other countries. Other countries on Social Security in particular, you know, our peers in the advanced economy world have done a little bit better than we have in separating out these two functions, rationalizing it, getting the labor supply effects a little bit better. Believe it or not. You know, because of the pressures of demographics, they've been a little faster to, to move than we have been. Uh, but labor supply, I mean, we want, we want people to, lo- to work longer, yeah. right? <laughs> right. We want them to work as long as they want to work. Right. And by the right. way- Forcing them. The longer they, they want to, the longer they yeah. work, the better off they will be. Right. Right. You know, the idea There's that- an incentive there. You know, uh, if you work at 66 and 67 and 68 and don't stop at 65, the evidence, the empirical evidence is overwhelming- that your resources in retirement till you know you pass from this world right. will be a lot better, and so uh, yeah, there's lots of reasons why that should be encouraged. And and under that kind of idea, um, so you would have uh, better incentives to keep working. Uh, uh, lower income Americans would get a better benefit and a more predictable benefit. And and it seems like you know too good to be true. The program would be on a better fiscal footing. All, all of the above. Oh, man. All of the, it's a win, 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 Jim. So I think this is one we should do, but you can imagine it's easy, easily attacked just because people say it's different and therefore somewhat, you know, feels scary to people. Right. So, and, and, and the It's cur- done prospectively, by the way. It only applies, <coughs> you know, down the right. road. It's not going to apply to anybody on the current program. And, uh, but it, it's, this seems like potentially, like it would have more sort of bipartisan potential just given the current situation and maybe the Medicare plan. Uh, is this at all appealing to, to Democrats, people on the left at all? It seems uh, like it could be. I mean, I mean, you are, help, you are helping lower-income people, which they say is you know, their, their priority with these programs. Yeah. You are doing that. Right. Is it, is it, I think it has the potential to be bipartisan, but for a lot of Democrats, they view Social Security as you know, their party's uh, – you know, put it in place. You know, President Roosevelt was the architect of it. They've been the defenders of it more than Republicans. And what do they want to do other? Than they would rather it? they would rather just keep the basic structure in place yeah. and tinker around the edges and make it solvent and maybe expand it a little. Right. They would. They're they, not. They, into, would, they would basically they would let, they would expose more people what they make to tax that that, yes. that fixed the financing problem. And they would then they would also uh, expand it in some fashion to. They would probably younger. try to. They would try to increase the benefit for for lower income people. Right. Okay. So they they would do that as well. Do they, uh, do they want me to be able to uh, get it at a younger age? No, I think they realize that that's a, that's pretty tough to, to sell at this point, right. <laughs> given the demographics of the country. So no, I haven't heard that idea. And turn into some sort of uh, you know backdoor universal basic income program. No, I haven't heard that <laughs> one yet. But they do they do talk about, and I'm not totally averse to this idea, which is putting a back-end old, old benefit. So that when somebody reaches 80 or 85, perhaps there's an extra benefit that gets kicked in because some people are running through their money before they uh, die. So, you know, you could see something like that happening also. 
has there been to the, to the social security idea you just outlined is you know have you i mean has, is that the pushback you've gotten <laughs> have people have, have, you, have you heard anything positive from democrats about about that idea um I can't or say is that's we, just not where they're at right now. I, I can't say we have the party. Uh, you know, uh, I can't really speak about the Democratic Party very knowledgeably. I don't know exactly where their heads are on these things, but I think they, uh, by observation, I would guess that they uh, view this as you know why you know this seems like something taking on a lot of a political risk for not much value. We can fix Social Security without all this trouble of changing its basic structure. Uh, so I, I don't detect a lot of interest. All right, and uh, and just to circle back here at the end toward the uh, uh, debt issue, again a lot of I think a lot of folks on the left would say would say what we have here is not an entitlement problem. Maybe we have some sort of entitlement problem. What we really have is a not taxing people enough uh, problem. Especially this is the issue right now. The CBO Congressional Budget Office keeps coming out with these uh, forecast shows the debt's going up, and uh, this is happening at the exact same time we just cut taxes. And they'll say, "Well, guess what? Uh, big shock. Uh, there's a bigger debt. You've been you've been uh, cutting cutting tax rates. So what, instead of, for, if, you know, before we start, you know, cutting these very valued programs, why not start raising taxes on uh, the Americans who can most afford it?" Well, that's certainly a possibility. I think the idea, though, that our that our fiscal problems are related to not taxing rich people enough doesn't bear any screw. I mean, if you look at this, the numbers from CBO and OMB, there's just no truth to it. That the the expected level of revenue collection in the country has been pretty steady. It's going to be about 17.5% of GDP going forward, even with the tax bill that passed last December. And yes, the tax cut that was enacted last year is going to reduce revenue by a little bit relative to the size of our economy. But entitlements have grown massively, both from the period 1970 to today, and will grow even more from now until 2040. And so, uh, you know, the problem of our country is we're devoting huge amounts to consumption-related entitlements. That's squeezing out every other priority. It's making it difficult to keep taxes where they are, which is a lot of voters would like it to be, and it's making it difficult to invest in other things. So if we we went back to a, uh, if we had a, uh, went back to a different tax code, let's say, uh, the Clinton era, we adopted the uh, the Clinton era tax code where there were, you know, you had a you had the you know forty percent top rate, and uh, because of income inequality and uh, all these wealthy tech folks, we let's toss a let's toss a ten percent sure tax on top of it. So if you're super rich, you're paying fifty, maybe fifty. Who knows? Fifty five. Does that generate enough money that we don't have to look very hard at these entitlement reforms? Well, this gets down to a question of what is the consequence of raising uh, the marginal rate to that level? And, you know, I'm not an expert in this area, right. so I, I'm really speaking just as someone who's observed. But and, do you think it would generate, uh, possibly generate enough money? It would generate would... a lot of money. But, I mean, A, I'm not so sure about the political philosophy behind a rate of 55% and why that's a good thing, right? right? I mean, someone earned an extra dollar, contributed to society, you know, did something that brought value, and they get to keep 45% of it, not counting, you know, state and local taxes, um, you know, that's starting to get into the territory where you're going to have incentive problems. I, I don't have any doubt about that. So, uh, you know, I think we're already pretty close to that, you know, 
level. And um, I wonder, you know, what the consequence would be economically of pushing rates above that level again. And, and, and as we uh, sort of finish up, usually in these discussions, you've talked about entitlements and changes the tax code in the future. People say, well, eventually we're going to have to go to a value added tax. Now, to me, I, like that just seems so far out of where uh, yeah. policymakers are today. But is that is that would that be part of the solution? A sort of a broad, a broad based, you know, kind of consumption tax. Well, it, you know, that's a hard question for people that are kind of more more toward growth oriented tax policy because in some ways a consumption oriented tax would be better than some of the other taxes we have. Right. So if we had a VAT and we got rid of some of the other ones, right. you might get people to say good deal, right? Uh, and there is some value in not having so much contention over, you know, revenue levels. The VAT does make it easier to raise taxes, right? right? Uh, which is why a lot of people hate it. But on the other hand, one would have the feeling that if the United States ever adopted a VAT, it would be on top of all the other taxes we already right, got, right? right? So uh, that'll feel not very satisfactory to a lot of people. It'll just add to the revenue base right. and, you know, Total revenues do matter, even if even if the way you raise it wasn't so bad. So I'd I'd be reluctant, and I don't I kind of don't see any political movement in this direction anyway. But I'd be reluctant to embrace of that unless it was part of some really big picture that rationalized the whole code. My guest today has been Jim Kreider. Jim, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Jim. wanted you to know that you can't just say the word bankruptcy and expect anything to happen. I didn't say it. I declared it. Still.